Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers and writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual Summer Writers Conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, broadcasting from atop a hill in Mercer County, here is your host, El Presidente, Emeritus. Thank you, Gertrude, and hola, listeners. Welcome to Episode 20 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I am your host, Eric Fritjus. My guest today is our first to come from the Great White North. Cheryl Denise hails from Elmira, Ontario. After moving to the States to work as a public health nurse in rural Colorado, she and her husband moved to West Virginia. As a poet, Cheryl's work has been described as articulating, quote, ineffable truths in blunt terms, human desire and spiritual longing infused with a love of life that can't resist touching, tasting, and naming the pleasures and pains of this world, unquote. She's had poems published in Hamilton Stone Review, Mennonite Life, Christian Living, Timbrel, Rhubarb, and Wild Sweet Notes. And she's the second guest on the podcast to have a poem featured on Garrison Keillor's Writer's Almanac. A version of her poetry collection, I Saw God Dancing, won first place in the 1998 West Virginia Writers' Annual Writing Contest. The final version was published by Cascadia Publishing House in 2005. Earlier this year, Cheryl won first place in West Virginia Writers' Long Poetry category for her poem, Mother from Paradise. When not writing, she's a nurse at the Barber County Senior Center and raises Jacob sheep with her husband as part of the Shepherd's Field Intentional Community near Philippi. Cheryl Denise, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You grew up in Elmira, Ontario. Uh, tell us a little bit about your, your life growing up. You were in the, the Mennonite community there. Yes, and I still, I still am Mennonite. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, when they think of Mennonites, think of um, horse and buggies and no electricity. And I didn't grow up like that. In Ontario, they call those types of Mennonites Old Order Mennonites. And my mother would say that the Old Order Mennonites broke away from us, and the Old Order Mennonites stayed kind of stuck in a time period where we and the Old Order Mennonites would nickname us the Red Brick Mennonites because we all have red brick churches, or at least we that's how we, how we started, that we moved on in time and kept some of the same principles but didn't stay stuck in a time period. Yeah, I suspect the common layman's view of the Mennonite church is that it's kind of like the Amish, only maybe not as stuffy and, and really dedicated to awesome baked goods. <laughs> There, there are some pretty good bakers in the Mennonite church, <laughs> and we do like to eat, I can tell you that. But yeah, there, there's a big difference between us and the Amish. We have a, a big belief in the, in the peace stance and in trying to live simply, but definitely the way I grew up was very modern, yes. <laughs> what was your journey from Canada to West Virginia? Well, when I left, I, I went to nursing school up in Ontario. And when I was finished with nursing school, in the Mennonite Church, voluntary service is, is kind of pushed. It's not required, but it's encouraged. And I applied to a few Mennonite voluntary service boards, and I really wanted to work in Canada somewhere. I wanted to go to Western Canada, but there wasn't any jobs that I was really into that were available at the time. But there was one Mennonite agency where they had a public health nursing job in rural Hispanic Colorado, 
and I really wanted to do public health. And so that's what got me into the States. And I spent two and a half years there. And that's when, and I loved Colorado. I loved the mountains, but it was, it was too far from family to live for, for too long. I ended up meeting my future husband there and we decided to get married and when we were looking for a place to live, we wanted some place with mountains and beauty and hiking and cross-country skiing and that kind of thing and we knew a couple people that lived in Harmon. We came to visit. My husband found a job and we ended up living here. So, What was your journey toward becoming a poet during this? Um, I kind of came, became a poet late in life. I started, I did a little bit of writing in high school, not a lot, but some. And for one of our poetry classes, if you wrote extra poems, you got extra credit. And so I did that and found I enjoyed it. But I didn't really start seriously writing until after college. And my roommate that I lived with in Colorado, she read some of my stuff and she just encouraged me and I started writing then and when Mike and I moved to to Philippi, West Virginia, I joined the Barber County Writers Workshop and I've been a member of that for the last, oh, I don't know, 16 years or something like that, 15 years and that's really been a place that has encouraged my writing and has, you know, mentored me and helped me along the way and so it's, writing was never anything I did formally. I've taken a few, audited a few classes at but Alderson Broadus College but as far as you know that's about the academic part of it um, in my life yeah well let's uh, hear one of your poems if you don't mind okay you have one in your your collection I saw God dancing that I think speaks a lot toward not only the Mennonite way of life but also probably does nothing to dispel the misperception of Mennonites of fabulous bakers <laughs> I think I know what one you're talking about. My people? Yes. My people. My people are quiet and don't always say what they want, what they need. They leave things off for you to figure out. They read Bibles and think a lot, but would never tell you their thoughts unless asked. And even then, they would speak quietly with a slow, strong sense of who God is. They'll ask what you believe and listen. My people say they don't make oatmeal rolls as good as grandma's. Even grandma says this. My people make carrot juice and like it. My grandpa, who's blind, can play pool and beat you. We eat at long, fancy tables with cloth napkins and say grace before meals. Mom makes pumpkin soup with a little a little more maple syrup. Creamy chocolates, raspberry truffles, hazelnut creams. My people know real love. My people love to feed church visitors, Mrs. Brubaker in the nursing home, even their gay neighbor. Everyone needs food, good food, from Sittler's Bakery in Conestoga, the old order women in the kitchen rolling sweet dough, bosoms cloudy with flour, my people think the only sin God really doesn't care about is gluttony, a second piece of pie. My people drink fresh-squeezed orange juice in the morning, use half and half, always have four different kinds of bread in their kitchens. They talk of things they don't agree with or understand, liberals, Catholics, ultra-conservatives, the Daves, blacks. But when they meet one, 
They offer shoe fly pie and a coffee, a little conversation, and afterwards they'll say, well, that one was okay. My people don't understand your people, but we'll feed you. <laughs> that speaks to so many, so many things, um, not only stomachs, but kind of the basic philosophy of, of family, I think. In mm-hmm. is, particularly the South, oddly enough. Okay. Are you in, from Southern Canada? Yes, yes, from Southern Ontario. <laughs> well, there, there it works out. Uh, one of the the references in here that I didn't I didn't get the Daves. Yes, the the Daves. They're a little, uh, a very small splinter, old order Mennonite group that broke off from the old order Mennonites. I'm not sure when it was, and I can't remember what it was over, but they broke off, and one of their leaders was called, uh, his first name was Dave, and so the locals, we we call this group of, of Mennonites the Daves, just a very small group. I think they're only in southern Ontario, and to look at them, you would think they were, you know, old order Mennonite, but they broke off of the church for some reason or other, and so they're one of the groups of people that, you know, my people don't, don't understand. <laughs> There was another of your poems that, in kind of a roundabout way, I think speaks to the Facebook generation. At least that's what popped into my head when I read it. Um, Facebook, it's, this is your uh, poem called Kissing Tag. Okay. And Facebook, the Facebook service being the phenomenon that it is, lots of people, myself included, have been able to reconnect with or at least see pictures from people in their past and even down into childhood. That's kind of the digital version of how things were done, but the analog version of that would be kind of newspaper clippings that get mailed out that dredge up memories past. Right. And your your poem, Kissing Tag, speaks to that very very thing. Yes, and that's how the poem did originate, with my sister sending me a clipping from our um, our home newspaper. Yes. Kissing Tag. Grade two, I ran fast, except once when fish caught me at the garbage bins. I thought for a second he wouldn't do it, fixing me with his eyes, holding me against green metal before quickly banging his face into mine. That afternoon he waited by the stoplights, looked at me for a nod or something, grabbed my hand. For three days, forever it seemed, we walked in silence a half mile to the end of my drive. I heard Mom tell Aunt Lucy in the kitchen I had a boyfriend. It was nine o'clock, and I was supposed to be asleep and knew enough not to defend myself. Fish was pale and blonde, his hair long in the back like a teenager's. He didn't go to church, and he swore some. With the boys, he talked kind of funny, fast, like he'd been to the jungle and was going back. Then one afternoon, he just wasn't there. He must have grown bored, and I was relieved. We've never spoken, even all through high school. After graduation, I moved to the Rockies. He stayed in Elmira, a job at the feed mill. Fifteen years since I've thought of him. Then yesterday, my sister sends me the Woolwich Observer, and there he is in black and white, his hair blown in the night wind, leaning outside the static, the only place in town mom told me never to go. 
a beer and a cigarette, an easy smile. Township goes smoke-free, but not fish staring at me to come home and taste the wild. I think that speaks to a common experience most people have of being able to look back and see kind of, you know, the road not taken quali- kind of quality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just sort of on, on some parallel earth, me and Fish hooked up. and <laughs> 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 The uh, poems in your collection, I Saw God Dancing, are, are divided into two sections, which we mentioned. Uh, the first section is called Someone Like You and the second called Sleeping Alone. And as one might expect, these two sections contain poems that, that while are all, they're often similar in theme, have some pretty different tonal shifts. Uh, can you talk about the, the divisions you intended between those two? Yeah, I think the first section of the book, there's a lot of memory poems and poems from childhood. And I think the, the latter section of the book, there's some more poems that are maybe questioning things or not taking things at face value or... Oh, there's some paranoid poems, some poems questioning some biblical stories, poems about loneliness and longing, and yeah. I kind of saw it, just like you were saying there, a look at similar events through different perspectives, one that's primarily innocent and one that's kind of been over the tracks once or twice. Yes, that's a good way to put it, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've said before uh, on this podcast that I am not a poet, so... I make no bones about being constantly in awe of the ability of poets to capture tremendous amounts of information in shorthand and being able to imply many words in just a few. And you have quite a number of poems in this collection that do that, uh, just masterfully so. And I think my favorite of them, as far as that goes, is Baking Bread. And that's kind of a, a perfect example of this. It also helps illustrate the tonal shift to me between someone like you and the sleeping alone section. Baking bread. When the news comes, her wedding band is covered with dough. While the phone receiver dangles, she greases the pans and rolls crescents. She imagines him coming home. A smile edges his face. His calloused hands break a roll, thick the butter thin the elderberry jam. He tears a piece, drops it on her tongue. A kiss melts her cheek. While the bread blackens in the oven, she can hear her sister knocking at the door, calling her name. The day he comes back no more. That to me is just heartbreaking and so beautifully constructed and so very, very real. Uh, can you tell us a little how that poem came to be? Um, well, thank you. Um, I really enjoy baking bread, and my grandmother's baked bread, and my mother makes bread, and and sometimes in the middle of the winter, you know, I'll be baking bread, and I'll think just how happy my husband Mike will be when he comes in the door, and you can just smell that smell, and that can just put you in such a good mood or a good place and and set the tone for a whole evening. And I guess I was thinking about Mennonite women or any women in particular who who do those things for somebody out of love and then and, and getting a message, you know, over the phone that someone's passed away, someone that they were making bread for, doing this special, wonderful thing, and it doesn't sink in and they still feel him coming in and feel him eating their food and, and feel that kiss, even though it's it's not happening. I think I've seen 
women still experiencing that. And so it's just, and, and I'm not sure exactly where that poem came from, but, but yeah, it is a very sad poem. You have a poem that, uh, it called God and Farmers that speaks a lot toward the farming way of life. And I thought that would be a nice way to go out today. Okay. I wrote this poem when a friend of mine who, who lived on a, a uh, farm who had a big hog operation and they were kind of this was back in the 90s when they were kind of being squeezed financially by the middleman and a lot of hog farms were going out of business and I wrote this poem for for this couple that was were having problems on the farm God and farmers I'm not sure but I think God likes farmers best people that work outside in blue jeans I don't get it why they're so poor unless God wants them to have the very best of heaven. I bet he doesn't watch us much in offices over spreadsheets and lawyer briefs. He gets bored. Mom said when the bridge on 21 went out, the one the horse and buggies use, the township proposed a $100,000 plan to be completed in six months. The old orders decided to do it themselves. In a week it was done for 25 Farmers know how God made the earth. When something dies, they make something else live. Their bodies last longer. They don't need gyms, spandex, magazine diets. Farmers get that noontime famished feeling, not the dull rumblings after inside work. They know where food comes from. They pray better. It's easy to forget God in offices. I can't see God calling someone to be a financial planner. Even jobs we think of as good get all screwed up. Nursing seems noble, working with old people. But sometimes I think, if I just let the residents go outside more, bring in golden labs and chickadees, stop giving out pills, God and the old folks would hold hands more. It's easy to like lobster in the city, to go to Pittsburgh to see the ballet to have nice homes in pretty neighborhoods, to keep the kids safe. But I don't know that God wants our money if we're rich. I think in heaven, God will tell the farmers jokes the rest of us won't understand. I think they'll still farm because they want to, but if a crop goes bad, God will order them pizza and beer. At noon, when the angels harp and the rest of us sing, God and the farmers will be playing games, making the corn and wheat sway. I love that image, God ordering them pizza and beer. And I think he would. (laughs) Well, Cheryl Denise, thank you so much for lending us some of your time today for the podcast. Thank you very much, Eric. Cheryl Denise's second collection of poetry, entitled What's in the Blood, is on schedule for publication by Cascadia Press in 2011. We have links to her first collection, I Saw God Dancing, as well as to other places you can find her poetry on the web, including a link to Garrison Keillor's reading of her poem, Veil, on the Writer's Almanac podcast. We also have lots of great outtakes from this episode, including other poems by Cheryl that we'll be featuring in future off-week bonus shows. For our next episode of this podcast, we'll be playing the first of what may ultimately be a three-part series in conversation between West Virginia Writers' first vice president, Kat Pleska, and author Lee Maynard. Join us for that beginning November the 20th. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Fowle. 
Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer, Pops Walker. This podcast has been produced by Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was recorded at the Mr. Herman Studios atop a hill in Mercer County.